0: Uh, Last week in Joshua chapter 10, we looked at uh, Joshua and the people of Israel's conquest of the southern kingdoms and the southern kings in the land of Canaan, right? And so uh, we've looked at that most at this time when the people of Israel are going into the land that God has promised, uh, it's not just one massive nation that they're walking into, but it's a conglomeration of a whole, like all of these cities are individual kingdoms, or there might be like kind of a, a small confederation of cities that are all one kingdom. And so there's a bunch of kings. Last week, I think we looked at, uh, there were eight kings that fell to Joshua and the Israelites. Joshua records at least 26 kings and kingdoms that the people of Israel go in to conquer. Um, and so last week we looked at they, they conquered the southern half of the land of Canaan and it happened in a pretty remarkable way because God was uh, like hurling fatal hailstones at the enemies of Israel. He caused the sun to stand still. And and notably, at the end of chapter 10, in verse 42, it says that Joshua captured all of these kings and their land at one time because the Lord... Uh, God of Israel fought for Israel. And so in in chapter 10, you get this really rapid picture of just a sweeping move of the people of Israel to conquer about half of the promised land. And then chapter 11 is going to pick up. You're you're heading over chapter 11, might say, conquests in northern Canaan or the northern kingdoms or the northern kings, something like that. So now we're looking at half of the the land of Canaan was conquered in chapter 10. Now what's going to happen in chapter 11 as the people continue to see God carry out his faithful provision for the promises that he made all the way back to Abraham. Uh, This week, we're still going to read all of chapter 11. I'm just going to give you um, just a heads up. Next week, we're covering like 10 chapters, so we're not going to read it all at the beginning of the sermon next week, okay? So chapters 12 through 21, I would encourage you to spend some time, work through it this week. Uh, We're going to pull out the major themes that are going on in that, but we will, like, you don't want to hear me read 10 chapters, I'm pretty sure. I was going to say, I don't have time, but you really just don't want to listen to me do that. Um, and so, just prepping you, uh, we're we're covering a big old uh, shotgun spread of, of chapters next week, so be prepared. This week, we're just looking at chapter 11. So if you'll uh, look on screen with me or look in your copy of God's Word, we'll pick up in, in uh, Joshua chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Jabin king of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshpoth, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinaroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth-dor, now you know I'm not reading all of ten chapters next week, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephath mam and eastward as far as the valley of Mispeh, And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its kings with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did." He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, And from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. As we pick up at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, really they echo what has already taken place in chapter 10 in the southern kingdoms. You have a king who hears about what God has been doing and what Israel has been doing, and so he gathers around him and sends word and gathers others to come and gather to fight with him. right? In, in chapter 10, it was, uh, it was a king, the king of Jerusalem who gathered five other kings in order to go fight Gibeon. Right, And they, so they all amassed and laid a siege at Gibeon. Now in chapter 11, it's the king of Hazor who hears what Israel has done in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And so he gathers a huge conglomeration of kings and kingdoms to fight together. It's, it's like almost like you get this picture of a multinational confederation that has one purpose, which is to face up and, and stop the Israelite um, conquest and to wipe out the Israelites for good. Uh, It's made up of all of the people that Moses was commanded or that God promised to give their land to the Israelites. It's the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, right? All of these people, that's the laundry list of names that comes up over and over again in Deuteronomy and as Moses is commanded to get the people of Israel prepared to go into the land. And what I want you to take away from this is, is in part, in verse 4, it says they came out with all of their troops in huge number, a great horde, and it says, and, and the, the horde is given a number or the inability to count it. It's a number so great, it's a number like the sand that is on the seashore, and they have a whole bunch of horses and chariots. In other words, they're, they're, it's a huge army. And it has the most advanced medical, or medical, military technology at the time, right? The the only other time so far that we've seen horses and chariots is Egypt, right? And and so the the idea here, and we've hit on this over and over again, so hopefully you've not gotten tired of hearing it yet. But the idea here is that Israel is once again, if it's just written on paper, they are outnumbered and they are in big trouble. They don't have horses. They don't have chariots. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots are at the bottom of the Red Sea. They didn't take any of those as plunder. They're on foot. And now they're facing a numberless, or it's, it's got a number, but the way that, the, that Joshua describes it is a number that is like sand on the seashore. Now, I know we live in the mountains, and we don't have a whole lot of sandy beaches, but if you've ever been to the, the beach, have you ever held sand in your hand and just and just let it run through your hand? And if you're like when you when you think about when, when God tells Abraham, I'm gonna give you offspring like the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore, right? And and just like you get that fine sand on your hand and, and there's like innumerable just, just what do you even call that? Crystals? Grains. There it is. Like some people eat grains and some people wear them on their hands after they're at the beach. Um, so, all those individual grains of sand, just like fine powder on your hand, but it's, it's like to, to try to imagine to count that. This, the, the idea that is being conveyed to you is that this is a big old group of people. Right? And, and we've gone back to this over and over again that each one of these people, in Deuteronomy, God says, each one of these people is greater and mightier than you. Right? And now you see them again putting all of their resources together with the sole express purpose of stopping Israel. And one of the thoughts that I had as I walked into this is a question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. But wouldn't it be nice if challenges to faith in Christ came one at a time in manageable pieces? Wouldn't it be nice that if the challenges to your faith in Christ just came like in a slow line to where you could see them coming, like, okay, obstacle Averted, next one, obstacle averted, rather than at times when they seem to come in overwhelming supply and you go, I have no idea what to do. It would be really nice if it just came at one at a time, wouldn't it? And then some people, meaning well, will tell you when it seems overwhelming, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's got to be written somewhere, isn't it? God won't give you more than you can handle. But then the reminder, actually, from Scripture is that God will actually allow you to experience that which is overwhelming without his presence. He will allow you to face what would otherwise overwhelm, cause despair, drown you in the overwhelming presence of it if he's not part of it. I don't know about you, but I don't really like that. I don't like being in places where the only way out is if he provides one. I like being in situations where I can work the problem. Anybody like, anybody like me? I like where I can look at my resources and say, okay, this is going to hurt a little bit, but I know how to do this. I don't like the situations where I go, God, I have no idea what to do here. God, if you don't make a way, I have no idea what to do here. I don't if you're like me you don't like those. And yet, what if that's really the picture of biblical faith, more so than I can work the problem. And a question, maybe maybe a little bit of a challenging question for us, or a challenging thought would be if my faith never takes me to a place of utter dependence on Jesus and his presence and provision, I'm probably not taking steps of faith, but I'm probably living within my own parameters of ability and comfort. Let me rephrase that, or restate that, if my faith never takes me to a place of utter dependence on Jesus and his presence and provision, I'm probably not taking steps of faith. Or to phrase it a differently, I'm probably not living by faith very often. And this is the challenge for us because, again, default position. I don't want to be in a place of utter dependence. We, we are a people who live in a place that is marked by we will not be dependent on anybody. Right? Like we, we live among a people of, just, uh, of, of dynamic individualism. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You got this. Like it might take a period of suffering, but you can do this. And faith in Jesus turns that all on its head and says, we walk in complete and utter dependence on Jesus for all that we need. But then we go, well, well, yeah, on paper we do. But in practice, I try to avoid those situations as much as possible. And it leads right back into the common refrain that we've heard over and over again in Joshua. when we talked about it last week in verse 6. Do not be afraid of them. Why should Israel be afraid? They're outnumbered again. Even though they just saw God work in an amazing way on their behalf at Jericho and at Ai, where God in both cases said, do not be afraid, go ahead. Do not be afraid, go ahead. Then last week in, in Joshua chapter 11, taking on all the southern kingdoms. Do not be afraid, for I've given them over to your hand. Still, our our fallback position is holy crud circumstances. And God faithfully and consistently just says, hey, if you're walking with him in faith, don't be afraid because I will work. And not only does he say don't be afraid of them, he says because tomorrow at this time I'll give them over all of them. And then he gets really specific and they will be like, I'll give them over to you slain. You're going to be putting them all to death. That's crazy. In a sense, again, if you just put it on paper for the people of Israel, your circumstances, overwhelming, odds, not great. Vegas has it 99.9% betting odds that the, the, the northern kingdoms pull this one out. The analysts on TV, these guys got chariots and they have horses. This is pretty much a done deal other than just the fighting on the battlefield. We'll update you tomorrow when all of it's done. And God instead says to his people, don't be afraid. The circumstances are not the determiner of what God will do. He gets really specific. He says, I'm going to hand them over. And then he also gives an interesting command to them at the end of verse 6 where he says, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, I'll come back to this again. As, as 21st century Christians, there's a lot in this that we don't like. I grew up I grew up from ranching families. Horses are valuable to it. Like, to, to go and, and maim a horse is like, that's stupid. Right, 21st century? We don't like it. So we go, why in the world does God command the people of Israel at the, on the back side of this battle to go and cripple all of the horses of the northern kingdom? Because as animal people, we don't like this. Right? And guess this. Even in the midst of God commanding him the people to wipe all the people out, there's a special part that's like, but the horses? That's too, like... I could get on board with all the people being like, we've been, we've been swimming in that pool for a while, but now now we're adding horses? Lord, this is too much. I want you to see the, the why. And, and you think about this again. I said that, that horses and chariots represent the height of military technology for this time frame and these people. In Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7, it's a Psalm of David. If you go up into verse 6, it says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. This is in Psalm 20, verse 6. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now catch that. David leads it off with, says, I know that the Lord saves his people. I know that he will answer from heaven. And I know that salvation will be seen through his mighty power. So then the very next thing is, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we... Trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we stand, rise and stand upright. So inherent is this is not God's hatred of horses. God created them, right? He's, he, and when he created them, he's like, this is a really good deal. Like, look at that, the prances and everything. It's awesome. But what it represents, when, when, when the people of Israel are told to cripple the horses as they take this battle and to burn all of the chariots is God is, like, right from the beginning, and you see, they're able to take all kinds of plunder from all sorts of other stuff, and yet they're told, burn all the military technology. Why? Like, don't you think they could use that in the future? Like, they could use horses and chariots, in the ne- like, as they establish this, this, themselves in the promised land, having a standing military seems like a really good idea. And yet the Lord says to them, you won't. You shall not put your trust in what you can do in in and of yourself. You see this play out again in Isaiah chapter 31. In Isaiah chapter 31, there's a coming trouble upon the people of Israel. Like you fast forward, this is past the people come into the land. They have kings, they establish themselves. God sends the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to trouble the people of Israel. The Babylonians are going to take Israel into captivity. And the people of Judah begin to look around and say, how can we get ourselves out of this mess? And in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord says, and again, the title of your passage might say something like, woe to those who go down to Egypt. The people of Judah decide, we're going to go bring military help from Egypt to alleviate this problem. But the Lord says to them, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It's the same, the same temptation that, that I, I just laid out for you. We would rather face situations where we can work the problem from our own solutions. And God is telling them before they ever get there, no temptation because you don't have horses that can pull a chariot. If you just had them burn the chariots, they could, hey, we'll rebuild chariots. He says, but you don't have anything to rely on, you have to live in utter dependence on the Lord to fight for you. You have to live in a way that depends on God's provision and not on your self-reliance, in a functional way. like that, that doesn't resonate with us as much, because for us, most of us, horses are not a necessary means of day-to-day life. They're a hobby. But for the Israelites, this is a necessary, like this is a functional means of how they would deliver themselves if they have the opportunity. And from the very beginning, as they go into the land, the Lord says, you're not going to do this. You will not rely on something other than me. So then one of the practical questions that we could stop and ask right there are, what are my horses and my chariots? What are my horses and my chariots? What are the things that I am holding in reserve? Like I just have them there in case. What are the ways that I'm spinning a contingency plan if God asks me to do something difficult? I want to be able to have the resources to make sure I make that happen. I want to make sure that I'm mentally and, and, and spiritually prepared for that, but I also want to physically have some things in the reserve just in case. What am, I, what am I falling back on? What am I really, another way to say this is what am I really trusting in? On paper, yeah, the Lord, the Lord will fight this. The Lord has this. I know he does. When I turn away, they'll go, this is what I'm really hoping in pull out the magic box from underneath the bed, dust it off, and like turn the padlock, I've been saving for this day. I have just what it takes. And the Lord is saying, don't hold those things in, in matters of faith. Are we walking to a place of dependence, or what are those things that are hindering dependence on his provision and his presence? They're not. They may not all be physical things. But what are those things that I am holding on to that my confidence is really riding on those rather than on the Lord and the strength of his might? And so as the people of Israel go into battle, it says they they, they do very similar to what they did in the southern kingdom. They have victory after victory. All the cities, verse 12, all of the cities of those kings and all of those kings Joshua captures and he strikes them down, he devotes them to destruction, just as Moses the servant had commanded. And you notice that phrase comes up over and over again in this chapter, just as Moses had commanded, or just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Right? So we, we see Joshua's overriding obedience to walk in the things that the Lord had told Moses to be about and by extension the people of Israel to be about. There's nothing undone, in verse 15 it says, nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And you see this pictured in verses 21 and 22. Because if you remember, when the people of Israel were, when the 12 spies were sent out by Moses to the land of promise to spy it out, one of the things that 10, 10 guys came back with was. There's no way we can take this. It's a really good land, but we are like grasshoppers in front of these people, right? Like, they're giants and we're tiny. And then you see in verses 21 and 22 that it says, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim. And you go, who are they? Like, that's just another group of people. Jebusites, Parasites, all these guys, right? Just another name. These were the giants in the land. So way before David goes out with uh, with a, a sling and stones to face off with Goliath, Joshua and the people of Israel are facing off against giants in the land as they go in. Well, what's interesting is is the very thing that caused the people of Israel to shrink back and reject following the Lord into the land under Moses are now also they're left they're not left undone under Joshua. They go in and he says, it says they devoted them to destruction with their cities. In verse 22, there is none left other than in these three cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, which later become Philistine places, which makes sense why Goliath might come out of there. Nothing left undone. In all the ways that Moses and the previous generation failed, we see in Joshua in chapter 11, the people of Israel responding in faith, stepping out in faith, stepping out in provision, stepping out in dependence, and seeing God deliver over, 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 over again. What's interesting, though, small little, and it's, it's just a quick phrase in verse 18, it's set at odds with chapter 10. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Remember what chapter 10 verse 42 said? All in the southern part, all of those kings and their armies handed over at one time. Joshua chapter 11, same promise, same provision, yet there's no sun standing still. There's no record of hailstones being thrown. There's just a record of a long time of this being carried out. And you go, how long is long? If we go into Joshua chapter 14, we get an idea probably about how long this goes on. In Joshua chapter 14, uh, and we'll, we'll hit on this just for a moment next week too, but it helps us out. In Joshua chapter 14, Caleb, who is the other spy along with Joshua, comes to Joshua to ask about his inheritance. And he, and, and he gives some insight. In verse 7 he says, I was 40 years old. This is Caleb speaking. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. These 45 years since that, the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I go on to say I'm still just as strong now as I was then. But he says, So he gives a time frame that shows us it's 45 years from when the initial spies were sent. 38 years in the wilderness, now 7 years probably, of fighting in the land. So when it says that they fought for a long time, the idea might be seven years they're fighting. Now, just catch this. Joshua chapter 10, the Lord hands them all over at one time. Joshua chapter 11, seven years. Same God, same provision of promises, yet two different ways of delivering the people of Israel into the land. And I think there's probably something in there that would preach to us. How often do we look at the challenge and we go, okay, I know how God has done this before. This is exactly how he will do it again. And he doesn't do it exactly the way he did before. You think about this when you see Jesus in the New Testament. You see the one time he heals somebody with a physical ailment and he makes spit out of the dirt and he rubs it on their eyes. And this says, go wash it off. So then the next time there's a blind guy, he goes, oh, he's going to make mud out of it again. He's going to spit in the dirt. And instead he just goes, hey, you should start seeing now. Right? He doesn't heal in the same way each time, in the same way that God doesn't always meet every single problem that we have faced, even though it might be a real similar problem in the same way. And I think one of the reasons why is because he is teaching us to rely on him and to be dependent on him, even when he doesn't do what we're expecting him to do. This is an incredible picture. In, in Joshua chapter 10, they have an incredible day of fighting. In Joshua chapter 11, they have incredible years of fighting. Now, if, if, he, if Joshua were to take a post-war survey, right, it comes in on his Google. The Lord has sent you a survey. He'd like you to complete it. You know. Which one of these uh, uh, campaigns did you enjoy more? One day, seven years. One day, please. If you were to take a survey at the end of your life, which which one of the ways of God's provision would you prefer more—instantaneous results or long protracted faithfulness of God that required you to faithfully cling to Him in faithful dependence? Instantaneous, please. Now, on the back side of the long, drawn-out, like, faith-filled, dependent walking, we go, wow, there was incredible, immense value, in, and I saw the goodness and the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord. But then if you said, do you want to do that again? No, thank you. <laughs> Give that to my really good friend. I think they need that. But catch this. it's the It's the same God who is faithfully acting in both chapters. Faithfully providing what the people need in the moment that they need it. And yet, if you were to ask them on the ground, like, it'd be really great if this was over tomorrow. It'd be really great if we could get another order of those hailstones served up. Where more of the people die from hailstones than they die by the edge of the sword. But yet, there's no record of any of that in Joshua chapter 11. All there is a record of is that Joshua faithfully continues to lead the people of Israel to faithfully do what God had commanded, and God faithfully provides as they faithfully do what he faithfully commanded. Faith, 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 faith. And it comes back to that question. How, like, how eager am I to walk out my life in faith? I didn't, I didn't say this before, but I, I wonder... If I were to ask you the question, what activity in your Christian life demands the greatest dependence and faith in Jesus? Like, What, what is it that pushes you into realms of utter dependence on the Lord on a daily basis? Uh, we, might, we might get a smattering of responses, but, but could I just throw one out to you that I think we could all go, yeah, that, that's probably true. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody else about um, their need for Jesus? Sharing your faith? Anybody feel just super confident and, and comfortable doing that every single time? How many times does that push you to a place where you are frantically praying, Lord, please give the words. Lord, please give the opportunity. Lord, please provide what I need. In this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And yet, I, could, could I bring us right back to Joshua chapter 11 and say, that's probably the reason why we shirk away from sharing our faith, because it pushes us into realms of complete and utter dependence. Because on face value, I can't save you. I can't make you make a decision to follow Jesus. I can't make you repent of your sins. I can run a program. I can, I can facilitate this. I can, I can manufacture this, and, and, I can, and I can ask the Lord to sprinkle faithfulness back on top of it, but it doesn't necessarily push me into that realm of, oh no, what if the Lord doesn't show up? One of the greatest challenges that maybe we would take out of Joshua chapter 11 is, is do we really believe that God will provide if we step out in faith to share what he has commanded us to share? Will he really provide? Will his spirit really provide the words? Will he really work in the heart of this person that needs to hear? Can he really do this? That's grappling with things outside of our control and saying, Lord, if we are to do this, then it's requiring me to trust him, trust his provision, trust his work, trust his everything, and just be a faithful conduit. All right, I'll go talk to him. You can pull your feet back in, put your shoes back on. No more toe-stepping for a minute. There's a difficult, there's a difficult verse in here that I, I don't want you to think we just glossed over in verse 20. Where it says that there's not, a, there's not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. So all of the people, all of these kingdoms devoted to destruction. And then in verse 20, another difficult passage here in the book of Joshua. It says, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. It's one of those verses where you go, oh, that's uncomfortable. I think we'll just skip on and go, the Lord knows what he's doing with that. I want to just give it a, a, a quick Survey and and it might just cause more questions rather than more answers, but that's okay. In Genesis chapter fifteen, verse thirteen, just to to take us back to the foundation of of what is going on. Again, we've talked about this in weeks past, but in Genesis chapter fifteen, verse starting verse thirteen, before Abram had any children, before his name had been changed to Abraham, before there was any inkling that the people of Israel would be walking into the land of Canaan, the Lord promises to Abram to give to him. The land that he is sojourning in in other words that he's living in a tent and he doesn't have a house to live in and in fact the only thing he ever owns in the land is a grave for his wife. it says then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land in Egypt that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve so we bring judgment on Egypt which is on the book of Exodus, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, your offspring, shall come back here to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation. For one of the reasons why they're going away for 400 years is because the sins or the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in other words, when we talked about this before, that when the Lord brings the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, using them as a, as a tool of his justice and his wrath against the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, against all those people, it has rightly been storing, like they've been running headlong away from the Lord 400 years. And the Lord is using Israel as a physical tool of his judgment and his justice. The only exceptions that we've seen in Joshua to that spot is because we've seen that play out in Joshua 10 and Joshua chapter 11. The only exceptions to that rule in the book of Joshua so far are Rahab and her family and the people of Gibeon. Outside of that, all of these other kings and kingdoms, God does exactly what he promised to Abram to do, which is to bring justice and judgment upon them. But then you go, well, then why? Is there this extra thing in verse 20 about the Lord hardening their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle and that do, 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 do. And I think that in that phrase is an important thing. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that what? They should come out in battle. So the Lord hardens their hearts in in, in accordance with what he has already told Abraham he's going to do. But he has stirred up in their hearts or hardened their hearts in order that they would all come together. So you ask the question, why did they all band together? to come out at one time to fight against Israel rather than one city at a time. And there's an insight in verse 20 that the Lord put it in their hearts to do it. The Lord was going to judge them anyway, but he brought about the way in which that they would set their minds and their hearts to action in battle against the people of Israel. So it's not the Lord causing something that is not already there. He's just confirming what they've already been doing. Similar to in, in the book of Exodus, the other place that, is, that we commonly see this play out is with uh, Moses and Aaron's interaction with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hardening heart towards the Israelites. Uh, and we're not going to walk through all of Exodus, but the, the first several times it is Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? Refused to listen. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there's a transition that starts to take place that says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know why? That seems wrong, but it's, he's 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 confirming and pushing. Like he's a he. he a, there's a season where Pharaoh is the one doing the hardening of his own heart, and then there's a season where the Lord says, "Okay, Pharaoh, we're going down this road. no turning back." And in both cases. What's interesting about this is in both of these cases in the Old Testament, the hardening of heart is done so that the Lord can, will show his glory among his people, among the nations. In the case of Egypt, it is because the Lord is going to bring them out, just as he promised to, to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to bring justice on the, the, the place that they serve. But he overwhelmingly shows who he is, not to, just to Egypt, but also it echoes into the land of Canaan because of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And now as the people go into the land of Canaan, again, what God is doing in and among his people in carrying out his promises is done as he confirms or continues to harden the already direction of the people opposed to him and opposed to his people. And you still go, that's still going to be some difficulty in that. So, so who is responsible then for their actions? Is God responsible for their actions or are the people, the Jebusites, Parasites, Hivites, Ammonites, Canaanites, are they responsible for their actions? Can I give you a really fun answer? Yeah. Uh huh. Wrestle with that tension. There's a mystery involved here. Where where do they start? Where does the Lord end? Or where does, where does one end and where does one begin? But there's also an interesting use of this idea and this language in Hebrews chapter 3. But it's not directed towards those outside of the faith. It's directed towards those in the household. So as the author of Hebrews is writing to the a collection of Jewish believers... He draws on a lot of the Old Testament um, rituals, sacrifice, prophets, um, a lot of the, the, the narrative of what happens in the Old Testament. He draws on that and showing its fulfillment in Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and we'll, we'll just read through here real quickly and finish here. But it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, talking about those Israelites who, who, who chose not to follow the Lord in faith, but those who hardened their hearts and said, we're going to do our own thing, we're not going into the land. Okay? So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, As it is said, today if you hear his voice, there it is again, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So if you tag these two ideas together, like what it, where does hardness of heart come from initially? It comes from unbelief. It comes from a refusal to trust or to believe who God is and to believe his word. And so the, the interplay here is there's a hardening by the individual, but there's also a, eventually a hardening by the Lord in, in Pharaoh and in the Canaanites. But then there's also this admonition towards those who are gathered in the corporate body, don't harden your heart through the deceitfulness of sin and through unbelief. Well, How do, how do I not have a hard heart? You respond continually and actively in faith to Jesus. How does somebody outside of these walls not have a hard heart? They're invited to, as Ezekiel says, to to transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. How does that happen? Happens through the transformational work of Jesus as they do what? Respond to him in faith. So regardless of where you are this morning, uh, where you might be, the appeal is really similar. If you find yourself and you go, I've never come to a place where I've trusted Jesus or I've actively followed him in faith, turning from my sins, turning towards him in faith, then the words of Hebrews chapter 3 would be, today don't harden your hearts like they did then. Respond in faith. But if you go, well, I have responded in faith, then what am I supposed to do with this? Continue to respond to him in faith-filled dependence on him. Respond to him in faith. You're like, what the antidote to a hard heart is faith. And the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites, there won't be a single one of them that would say, well, no, I didn't, I didn't want to go to battle, but something just made me go do it. Like, it was consistent with who they were. Like, God wasn't forcing upon them a hard heart that wasn't naturally theirs in the first place. He just stirred up with their hard heart. He stirred them up to do what he wanted them to do in order that his name might be made great among the nations. So the, the, the question we fall back to, though, again, is, is am I, first of all, willing, but then not just willing, am I actively stepping out to follow Jesus in faith-filled dependence? When we talk about this from time to time. There's a difference between belief and faith. Right? Belief is, is maybe believing the right things about God. It could, be, it could be believing the right things about who Jesus is. Like Conceptually, I know those things. And faith is taking those things that I say I believe and they're acting out. So a simple definition of faith is belief in action. I'm going to do what is consistent with what I believe. So what do my actions reveal about what I believe to be true about who Jesus is? Do my actions reveal that I really believe that he is sufficient? Do I really believe that he's going to provide? Do I really believe that he's going to do the things that he's promised to do? Or do my actions display that while I might believe the right things, I'm still trusting in my horses and my chariots? And if I'm still trusting in something else, then the call is, Hebrews chapter 3 today, if you hear his voice, don't harden it. Turn towards him, respond in faith. It would be a lot easier, right, if we could just do a chariot-burning party in the parking lot. But as you reflect on this in the days to come, what is it that, that has an overwhelming grip on your life that you don't really recognize, but it plays out in what you do? Where is my dependence? Where is my reliance? Where is my hope? And if you're not sure, just go like, what is my life? What, what am I doing? It's probably going to show what's most important to me. It's going to show where my heart is. It's going to show where my faith is. And the invitation from him over and over again is to taste and see that he's good. Put it like to walk out in the things that he has promised, and he will show himself faithful. So if he's promised in his word, do we believe it? Will we do it?